You are listening to the podcast portion of The Narrated Puritan, puritanaudiobooks.com, and I want to bring some more reflections on revival. And in doing this, and in quoting my sources, we can see that compared to what a real revival is, is recorded and received in true revival history. The Asbury Revival has nothing of these characteristics that I'm about to talk about. I just got notice from a friend that the Philadelphia Reformed Conference is going on in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and one of the speakers there is Jeffrey Thomas, and he made a comment about the Asbury Revival, and that is that we should not judge it because God may yet do a work through that, and I'm just going to have to disagree because if God were to come in his manifest presence to the students at Asbury University, they wouldn't be singing, most of them. They'd be lying around on the ground like soldiers who had been shot in the Civil War lay around the battlefield. The dread, the fear of the manifest presence of God upon the unconverted is horrible. It's dreadful. I have to get that through to people. Listen to this quote by A.W. Pink, Inclinings and the Godhead, the Attributes of God, the God of this century, no more resembles the sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of the midday sun, the God who is talked about in the average pulpit, spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school, Mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day and preached in most of the so-called Bible conference is a figment of human imagination, an invention of maudlin sentimentality. I want to quote a few historic events and records of revival to manifest my point. And anywhere that I begin in any solid treatment of revivals in history in the past will mention this. Take, for example, Books such as the Welsh Revival, its origin and development by the Reverend Thomas Phillips Hefford, introduction by John Venn, 1860. I've already narrated some of this for the narrated Puritan, and you can listen to it. Or take The Year of Grace, another book on the revival in 1859 in Ireland by William Gibson. Yesterday in the mail, I actually received the first edition of the first annual of a magazine called the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine, which was started in the year 1800 in the month of July. It was really a prize to me to get that first edition because it is the premier magazine that details the revivals that happened in America at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century. But if you want a book that details many of the accounts that are in the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine. It was last published by Richard Owen Roberts. The editor was Bennett Tyler. Tyler wrote the biography of Asa Hell Nettleton. He was a president of Dartmouth College in the 19th century and then went on to form with Asa Hell Nettleton. Hartford Seminary in Connecticut. I have that book open before me, and I want to give a couple of quotes from it, from two different accounts of two different revivals. This is in chapter 4 to begin, Newt Hartford, Connecticut, 1798, by the Reverend Edward Dorr Griffin. First of all, he introduces 
to history by speaking about the spiritual declension and indifference, basically speaking, of the people in the assemblies. And then he said this, As the state of the people went on a Sabbath in the month of November, it was the sovereign pleasure of a most merciful God very sensibly to manifest himself in the public assembly. Many abiding impressions were made on minds seemingly the least susceptible, and on several grown old in unbelief. From that memorable day the flame which had been kindling in secret broke out. By desire of the people religious conferences were set up in different parts of the town, which continued to be attended by deeply affected crowds, and in which the divine presence and power were manifested to a degree which we had never before witnessed. It is not meant that they were marked without Christ, distortions of body, or any symptoms of intemperate zeal, but only that the power of divine truth made deep impression on the assemblies. You might often see a congregation sit with deep solemnity depicted in their countenance without observing a tear or sob during the service. Why, he says, because this last observation is not made with design to cast odium on such natural expressions of a wounded spirit, but the case was so with us that most of those who were exercised, and when they use the word exercise in this context in a bygone day, they were receiving spiritual impressions, were often too deeply impressed to weep. Addresses to the passions now no longer necessary since the attention was engaged were avoided, and the aim was to come at the conscience. Little terror was preached except what is implied in the doctrines of the entire depravity of the carnal heart, its enmity against God, its deceitful doubtings and attempts to avoid the soul-humbling terms of the gospel, end quote. The next quote is in chapter 2, an account of a revival in religion in Somers, Connecticut, 1798. The pastor is Reverend Jeremiah Hallock. There is a biography written of him. I just downloaded it the other day. But listen to what he says here. On my return the next evening, I found a young person under deep religious impressions. She told me that she was a poor sinner going down to hell and that her impressions began on the Sabbath in the forenoon, but increased in the afternoon. And in the evening, her concern was such that she could no longer keep it secret, though it had been her intention that no one should know it. The next evening, at a conference, there was an unusual solemnity, and many were in tears. The morning following, I found two other youth, with the one first awakened, whose minds were likewise impressed. And... Here's another quote. After this meeting, about 14 children and youth were found whose minds appeared to be impressed. One of them said, I have been over a precipice all my days and never saw it until now. The next day, it was affecting to see by the rising of the sun awakened youth come into my house to know what they should do to be saved. In the after part of the day, I visited a number of females in another neighborhood where these things had been hardly known and found a remarkable attention. The tear often flowed on the first mentioning of eternal things. Now the next paragraph that I want to read, I want to comment on because this is so foreign to our thinking in our day. In the evening there were found in a neighborhood where the work first began. 
at a house where a meeting had been appointed, about thirty children and youth who appeared serious and some under deep concern. It was indeed an affecting scene, and one particular fact will not soon be forgotten. Now listen to this. A young woman, deeply impressed, said to another in the same situation, Do not weep so. What good can it do? God does not regard such selfish tears as you and I shed. Upon this, the one spoken to her took her by the hand and said, Oh, you were trying to quiet me? But you trembled yourself, which was truly the case. So my comment is that that's very unusual for us to hear that somebody would say that these cries for mercy were not necessarily going to be regarded by God. How could that possibly be so? They're crying for mercy. And the answer to that is, crying for mercy in and of itself is not evangelical until the Holy Spirit changes a governing disposition of the soul. What is conviction of sin? This is from Augustus Hopkins' Strong Systematic Theology. And I think this is so good. Conviction of sin, and they're talking about what goes on before conversion. Conviction of sin is an ordinary, if not an invariable, antecedent, that which goes before. Antecedent of regeneration. It results from the contemplation of truth. It is often accompanied by fear, remorse, and cries for mercy. Now listen, this is the key. But these desires and fears are not signs of regeneration. They are selfish. They are quite consistent with manifest and dreadful enmity to God. Now they have a hopeful aspect simply because they are evidence that the Holy Spirit is striving with the soul. But this work of the Spirit is not yet regeneration. At most it is an antecedent to regeneration. But so far as the sinner is concerned, he is more of a sinner than ever before. Because under more light than has ever been given him before, he is still rejecting Christ and resisting the Spirit. Well, that's shocking. Well, I'm going to prove my point by quoting Jonathan Edwards in a sermon called The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners to drive this point home. This is an enlarged explanation of what the two ladies were saying to one another. Jonathan Edwards in his application says, I am sensible that by this time many persons are ready to object against this if all should speak what they now think. We should hear a murmuring all over the meeting house, and one and another would say, I cannot see how this can be that I'm not willing that Christ should be my Savior, when I would give all the world that he was my Savior. How is it possible that I should not be willing to have Christ for my Savior, when this is what I am seeking after and praying for and striving for is for my life? Here, therefore, I would endeavor to convince you that you are under a gross mistake in this manner. There is a great deal of difference between a willingness not to be damned and a being willing to receive Christ for your Savior. You have the former. There is no doubt of that. Nobody supposes that you love misery so as to choose an eternity of it, and so doubtless you are willing to be saved from eternal misery. But that is a very different thing from being willing to come to Christ. 
persons commonly mistake the one for the other, but they are two different things. You may love the deliverance, but hate the deliverer. You tell of a willingness, but do not consider what is that object of your willingness. It does not respect Christ. The way of salvation by him is not at all the object of it, but it is wholly terminated on your escape from misery. So all that to explain what the ladies were saying to one another under this awakening. But that is so foreign to our thought in this day. But Jesus said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Just crying out for mercy is mercenary until God mercifully interposes and changes a governing disposition called a new birth. And then a person comes to Christ in faith and repentance. To quote Augustus Strong again, So far as the sinner is concerned, while he is under conviction of sin, he is more of a sinner than ever before, because under more light than has ever been before given him, he is still rejecting Christ and resisting the Spirit. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit appeal to lower as well as appeal to higher motives. Most men's concern about religion is determined at the outside by hope or fear. All these motives, though they are not the highest or yet proper motives to influence a soul, it is not wrong to seek God from motives of self-interest and because we desire heaven. But the seeking which not only begins but ends upon this lower plane is never successful. Until the soul gives itself to God from motives of love, it is never saved. And as long as the preliminary motives rule, regeneration has not yet taken place. But in order to build argument upon argument using the history of revivals in the past, I'm quoting from Jonathan Dickinson, a Presbyterian pastor in New Jersey, who also became the first president of the College of New Jersey. And this is his detail of the revival that happened in his congregation in 1740. Heaven at that time invited the young people to hear a sermon. There was a numerous congregation convened which consisted chiefly of our youth, though there were many others with them. I preached them a plain, practical sermon, without any special liveliness or vigor, for I was then in a remarkable dead and dull frame till enlivened by a sudden and deep impression which visibly appeared upon the congregation in general. There was no crying out or falling down, as happened elsewhere, but the inward distress and concern of the audience discovered itself by their tears and by an audible sobbing and sighing in almost all parts of the assembly. There appeared such tokens of a solemn and deep concern as I never before saw in any congregation whatsoever. End quote. Again, I'm quoting from a book called John Gilley's Historical Collections and Accounts of Revival. It's not the original name. It was the name that was given to it when A Banner of Truth Publications published it in the year 1981. And the version they published had an introduction by Horatius Bonar and some more revival accounts of Bonar added to this as this book came out in the 1750s. And this pastor wrote, Saturday the 12th, 1740, I preached on the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of faith. While I was speaking, several dropped down as dead. And among the rest, such a cry was heard of sinners groaning for the righteousness of faith as almost drowned my voice.
End quote. The following account is from a letter by Mr. Saccone, minister at Harvard, to Thomas Prince, minister at Boston, February 20th, 1744. The work of conviction and conversion was begun and carried on in a gradual manner, principally by the preaching of the word. The preach word became more quick and powerful than usual, like a sapphire and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. In particularly, some sermons from Isaiah and Ezekiel were set home upon the hearts of some of their great awakening and, I hope, saving good. Many were made sensible of that miserable, wretched state they were in by nature and that fountain of sin that is in the heart, judging and condemning themselves as the very greatest and vilest of sinners, and greatly concerned how to obtain an interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some had amazing apprehensions of the dreadful wrath of God under which they lay, very sensible how greatly they had been blinded and deluded in time past on the nature of religion and the state of their own souls, greatly affected with their ignorance and divine things, and to think they had abused the patience of God so long, being even astonished at their being yet out of hell, and greatly bewailing their former insensibleness of the design of the Holy Sabbath, and their having sent away such precious seasons for their souls. Now they became wonderfully attentive to the word preached as if they would not by any means lose a single sentence. From a letter of Mr. Samuel Blair, minister at New Londonderry, to Thomas Prince, minister at Boston, August 6, 1744. I had some view and sense of the deplorable condition of the land in general, and accordingly the scope of my preaching through that first winter after I came here was mainly calculated for persons in a natural, unregenerate state. I endeavored, as the Lord enabled me, to open up and prove from his word and truths which I judged most necessary for such as were in that state to know and believe in order to their conviction and conversion. At the beginning of March, I took a journey into East Jersey and was abroad for two or three Sabbaths. A neighboring minister who seemed to be earnest for the awakening and conversion of secure sinners, and whom I had obtained to preach a Sabbath to my people in my absence, preached to them. I think on the first Sabbath after I left home. His subject was a danger and awful case as such as continue unregenerate and unfruitful under the means of grace. The text was Luke 13 verse 7. Then said he to the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, the three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Under that sermon there was a visible appearance of much soul concern among the hearers, so that some burst out with an audible noise and a bitter crying, a thing not known in these areas before. After I'd come home there came a young man to my house under deep trouble about the state of his soul whom I had looked upon as a pretty light, merry sort of youth. He told me that he was not anything concerned about himself in the time of hearing. The above-mentioned sermon, nor afterwards, till the next day, went to his labor, which was grubbing, in order to clear some new ground. The first grub he set about was a pretty large one with a high top, and when he had cut the roots as it fell down, these words came instantly to his remembrance. As a spear to his heart, cut it down, like cumbereth at the ground. 
So thought he, must I be cut down by the justice of God for the burning of hell. He thus came in a very great and abiding distress, which to all appearances had a happy issue. His conversation being to this day as becomes the gospel of Christ. The news of this very public appearance of deep soul concern among my people met me in hundred miles from home. I was very joyful to hear of it, in hopes that God was about to carry on an extensive work of converting grace amongst them. And the first sermon I preached after my return to them was from Matthew 6:33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And later he says, the number of the awakened increased very fast. Frequently under sermons there were some newly convicted and brought into deep distress of soul about their perishing estate. Our Sabbath assembly soon became very large. Many people from almost all parts around inclining very much to come where there was such appearance of the divine power and presence. I think there was scarcely a sermon or lecture preached here through that whole summer but there were manifest evidences of impressions on the hearers, and many times the impressions were very great and general. Several would be overcome and fainting, others deeply sobbing, hardly able to contain, others crying in the most dolorous manner, many others more silently weeping in a solemn concern appearing in the countenance of many others." End quote. The following quote is taken from the revival in Boston in 1740. Mr. Gilbert Tennant preached his farewell sermon to the people of Boston in Dr. Coleman's house of worship. It was an affectionate parting, and as great numbers of all conditions and ages appeared awakened by him, there seemed to be a general sadness that is going away. And now was such a time as we never knew. The Reverend Mr. Cooper was wont to say that more people came to him in one week in deep concern about their souls than in the whole twenty-four years of its preceding ministry. I can also say the same as to the numbers who came to me, in quote, from a letter of Mr. Cotton of Newton, August 1742, quote, the first person that cried out under the preaching of the word in the first parish of Renham was a man more than forty years old at a lecture on August 19, 1742. Towards the close of the sermon, the said person spake out with much concern and distress about the state of his soul. Soon after the congregation was dismissed, he went to discourse with Mr. Cotton, who asking him the reason of his crying out in the assembly in the manner he had done. The man replied that he could not avoid his doing so, though he had often spoken against other people crying out, and had said that they might, if they would, refrain from it and not disturb the congregation in hearing. He then added that he went to that lecture with a more serious concern upon his mind than he had commonly done, and that he might get good by that opportunity. And he said that the word he heard came with such power to him that he could not help crying out and speaking as he did, end quote. Now I can suppose an objection that that was just the great awakening of the 1740s. But I have opened now the Welsh Revival of 1859 and the author is Thomas Phillips. In a previous podcast, I'd already quoted from Adam McGill in Boviva, Ireland, 1859, the revival that came there. Well, it was so in Wales and it was so in England and other places. And this is what it says. On the 2nd of November, 1859, 
The Reverend E. Edwards, rector of Festa in the Og and Montrog, thus writes, My dear friend, You will doubtless be pleased to learn that the religious movement which has been taking place in various parts of the world at the present time has at length reached the parishes of. About three weeks ago, a few young men came to work in the slate quarries. They were in deep concern about the state of their souls. They came on Monday morning, and their deep distress was observed by several of the quarrymen. They followed their work in a state of mind, occasionally weeping on account of their lost condition as guilty sinners before God. After dinner the following day, they were observed by some working people making their way to the top of the hill. Immediately they were followed by all the workmen in that quarry, being about five hundred in number. They halted on the summit of the mountain, and on that spot, under the broad canopy of heaven, they held a prayer meeting. While they prayed, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them most abundantly. Nearly all present wept and sobbed aloud. On the same evening, they met in their respective places of worship to hold a prayer meeting. On the following day, they met again on the mountain, leaving their work unheeded. For by this time the people were in a state of great religious excitement. They met every night during that week at their several places of worship to offer a prayer to Almighty God. The rocks seemed to re-echo the voice of prayer and praise. On the following Saturday those who lived at a distance went to their homes carrying with them the newly kindled revival fire, and on the morrow the surrounding churches and chapels were in a blaze. Our people met to hold a Saturday evening prayer meeting. I attended it, in witnessing the effects already produced upon those who were present. It was announced that another prayer meeting would be held next morning at 8 o'clock. Such a prayer meeting I never attended. The most ungodly persons present were overwhelmed. We prayed and wept, wept and prayed until nature was exhausted. Instead of the Sunday school as usual in the afternoon, we met to pray again. But in the interval at noon, all the congregations, church, and chapel met on a brow of a hill above the village to pray. It was indeed a glorious meeting while it lasted, which was about one and a half hours, when the rain came down in torrents and dispersed us. From another account, January 3rd, 1860. The revival in this neighborhood has been steadily progressing since it broke out at the beginning of last October. With regard to its character and the blessed effects it has already produced, I do not know what to say or where to begin. It is singular that the greatest sinners and the most profligate were amongst those that were first convinced and converted. When these were present in the means of grace, especially in the prayer meeting, a sense of awful condemnation and an agonizing dread of God's wrath seemed to overwhelm them so that they were forced to cry aloud for mercy. Sometimes they would fall down on their knees and one after the other pray of their own accord for five or ten minutes. Others again seeing and hearing these were so deeply affected that there would be nothing done seen or heard but loud sobbing, weeping, and wailing by all present, end quote. The following accounts are taken from a book called The Year of Grace, A History of the Ulster Revival of 1859, 
by the Reverend William Gibson, Professor of Christian Ethics, Moderator of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, published in the year 1860. Here's a quote. Page 50. It may be observed generally that so far as can be gathered of the great majority of cases, they have been preceded for a longer or shorter period by an agonizing sense of sin, sometimes lying dully on the conscience for weeks and months together, sometimes overwhelming us in a moment by its intolerable pressure, and violently demonstrative in its manifestations. The physical prostration itself has taken place under every possible variety of circumstances, at home, abroad, in the church, and in the marketplace, in a crowded meeting in the seclusion of retirement. One is stricken as he plies the shuttle or the loom. Another is as eye falls upon some familiar passage, or his ear is arrested by some oft-repeated invitation of the word. A third while he is engaged in secret meditation or prayer. I have known the case of a man, says the Reverend John McNaughton of Belfast. Referring to another class of instances, after his visit to Balamena, going home from the market, after he had sold his produce, passing along the roadside and counting his money to see whether it was all right, when he sunk down as if sunstruck, and his money was scattered on the road. Of the several stages in the experience of those who have been the subjects of physical prostration, the first is characterized by an awful apprehension of impending evil, a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, accompanied by a crushing pressure on the region of the heart, inducing a loud despairing cry or the groan of agony. In this state the sufferer is overwhelmed as by the bellows of divine wrath, so that human help is for the time of no avail and that all man can do is to await the issue, committing it to him who causes light to arise into darkness. Then is a period also of fierce wrestling, real or imagined, with the evil one, whose personality is apprehended with terrible distinctness, insomuch that the soul is in an arena in which a death struggle is being carried on between the powers of light and darkness. In the second stage, which is generally very sudden in its development, there is a transition from the deep depression before experience to a calmer state of feeling, and some object earnestly desired and longed for stands out before the view, the intensity of the mind's gaze being such that no human presence, although many may be intently waited by, is realized. It is a sort of waking dream in which a steadfast countenance and upturned eye denote the character of the inward exercise. The laboring chest no longer heaves under its oppressive burden. There is a substance of the sob, the groan, the well of lamentation, and the cold damps are passing off the brow, quote. Again, quoting from William Spears' The Great Revival of 1800, which I quoted in a previous podcast. This is a Kentucky revival under William McGrady, down in Logan County, about 90 miles from where I sit. Quote, as far as I can see, there appears to be in the subjects of this work a deep, heart-humbling sense of the great unreasonableness, abominable nature, pernicious effects, and deadly consequences of sin, and the absolute unworthiness and the sinful creature of the smallest crumb of mercy from the hand of a holy God. 
There appears to be in them a deep mourning on account of their own sins, the sins of their fellow professors, and the sins of the careless and profane, and particularly for the base sin of ingratitude to God for his many mercies, and conviction of the justice of God in condemning and punishing his offending creatures, end quote. Now, when somebody had asked me about the Asbury revival, and I knew I was going to take a lot of flack, because... I immediately was suspicious of it, knowing what I know of revivals and the Asbury Revival in 1970, and I lost a lot of sleep praying about this because I knew I wasn't going to be in the majority in my views. I'm just going on just about 40 years of study of revivals in American and European history, but I want to recommend three things or four that you absolutely have to read that I have reread this week in order to assist you to determine what are the biblical elements of a real revival, what are its counterfeits, and what do we need to be cautioned against. And number one, and I narrated it again this week, and it was the second time in three months, there is a book called Lectures on Revival from the Ministers of Scotland published in the year 1840. You must... I don't know hardly anything like it. You must read William Hetherington's preface to that book. It is so well written, and in every part of it I'm in so much agreement. Number two, Lectures on Revival of Religion, William Sprague, 1832. I just narrated a part of that about things to be cautioned against in a revival about the last chapter in that book. Number three, a section of the constitutional history of the Presbyterian Church in the USA by Charles Hodge called The Great Revival. It's very important that you read that because of his analysis. Whether you totally agree with him or not, it absolutely has to be ascertained because in the bottom of every real revival of religion, all elements that are of God are going to be the product of the Holy Spirit applying the word in preaching and meditating and reading and singing and praying. Also, a treatise on the religious affections by Jonathan Edwards is a must, including the number of negative signs that neither prove nor disprove that affections are gracious. Also, his distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God Except with one caveat, I would also, as you read that, keep in mind some of the cautions that Charles Hodge says about it. Everything that Edward says is a proper product of what the Spirit produces in fruits as a result of the word being applied. I think there's some things he says in there that he more carefully qualifies in another very, very important work called Thoughts on the Present Revival of Religion in New England by Jonathan Edwards. Absolutely essential. Some of the greatest wisdom in that subject that I know in the English language. Further in Volume 3 of Dabney's Discussions, now all of these are in PDF format or other format online. This article is called Spurious Religious Excitements, and it was written kind of at the end of Charles Finney's ministry. It is absolutely essential reading. Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander, especially Chapter 5 on Sympathy. Very, very insightful.
I know I've read Charles Hodges' The Great Revival close to 20 times, I'm sure, since it was introduced to me back in 1989. And at first, that book caused me a great consternation. I was wondering if he went too far, but if you are very, very careful as you read it. There's just too much in there that you just cannot let go. It is very important to understand about pure, pure revivals by the Holy Spirit of God. And then with that, I would read Joseph Tracy's work on the Great Awakening. Very helpful work indeed as well. Believe me, the minority of the people who are even speaking about with cautionary measures of what should constitute a real revival don't properly impress the people with the history of what the pure revivals looked like. There were some things that happened in the Great Awakening that were not that pure. There was too much of giving in to the concomitments, if I could call them that, of real revival, and that is when people are aware that they are under the wrath of God and they are not in Christ. There are going to be outcries. But those have to be constrained. If somebody points to them as the evidence of a revival of religion that begins to mistake the effects of the revival upon the human animal passions for true revival itself. So for that reason, it's very, very helpful to read The Life of Asa Hell Nettleton by Bennett Tyler and also Heman Humphrey on revivals as well. That's going to be very helpful. We really are praying, most of us, who are solid and solemn in these days in which we live, we really want real revival. But the fact of the matter is, it is going to cause problems in young pastors who do not know how to counsel the awakened. That's another subject that has been part of my meditation over 30 years. How do you properly counsel somebody that's under that kind of extreme stress? Many on our day don't even understand some of the allegorical meaning that Bunyan was trying to communicate in Pilgrim's Progress about the burden on the back, the counsel of evangelist, why the burden didn't fall off his back the moment that he entered into Wicket Gate, but not till he got a view by faith of the sight of the cross. In our day, experimental theology isn't studied at that level. If you want a good book on Christian experience and answering these, what we call casuistry or cases of conscience, I still very highly recommend the book Cases of Conscience by Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward. It came out in the year 1855. And anything that I've mentioned here, for the most part, I've narrated. The only thing I can't narrate because it's, um, not in the public domain, but I would love to narrate as for sure Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. It's pure gold. Came out in the year 1994. So with that, I'll leave it there. But I hope I have communicated something to get people to think seriously and cautiously about what we call revival in our day. The devil has come down to you with great wrath, it says in Revelation 12.12, because he knows that his time is short, and he is a deceiver. He can manifest himself as an angel of light, and a lot of the stuff that we call praise to God is a praise to a God that's a figment of the human imagination, while the unregenerate heart is still at enmity against him. 
And may God open people's eyes to see that it is so. I don't think people properly understand the enmity, the total enmity that is in the unregenerate heart against God. And that only God could slay that enmity. Only God can quicken an individual and make him a new creature in Christ. Thanks for tuning in.